Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Otto, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Didn't used to be. I am an alcoholic. Uh, I want to say thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. Never in the world did I dream when I checked into that treatment center on July 1st, 1985, that it was going to lead me to an all-expense-paid week-long vacation in Crestview. (laughs) It wasn't on their list of things that you were going to get out of that treatment center. (laughs) My best thinking never got me anywhere I wanted to go, and this wasn't on my list of things to do. So once again, my best thinking is not going to get me where I really enjoy being. I've had a delightful week in a beautiful place and with a bunch of beautiful people. I've enjoyed meeting you all. And if I didn't get a chance to meet you, that's my regret, and I'll try to come back, and I hope you will, too. A special thanks to Jim and Oida for making it possible for me to be here. I know they did that, or I'm under the impression they did that. There might be a committee, you know, but there's always somebody that's wrenching it, you know, putting the screws on it, you know, and they're going, no, you know, going, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, Jim and Oida had a lot to do with me being here, and it's been a real gift. Uh, uh, this is This is not something I could afford. Uh, of my own. So, once again, God's doing for me what I can't do for myself, you know. And I want to say thank you very much. That's been a great week. And, uh, gee, I already want to start crying. You started this. <laughs> yeah, you started this. I just love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love the people that are in it. Uh, you guys saved my life. And you guys gave me a life that's more than worth living. And, uh, Today I live in a world that I didn't know existed when I got here. And uh, I hope that a little bit of that gratitude I'll be able to express tonight. It's my intent to tell you what it was like, the miracles that have happened, and what it's like now. I am not good uh, with language. So I have a little note here that says, no profanity, Otto. <laughs> and I've prayed about it. I mean, I'm not just taking that on myself. But it's there. And I'm working on it, okay? Me and him, okay? And also, I'm not very good at brevity. It's 8.30 by my watch. What do you got? Okay, there's no clock in here. I can't see that one. Okay. So about 10.30 or 11, you know, we'll take a break for any of you that need to use the restroom. Now, I hope to just say what it is I'm supposed to say tonight and and that we can all uh, enjoy each other the rest of the evening and have a safe trip home tomorrow and, and carry the love that's in this conference home with us. However... I did hear Paul O say one time, and he's one of my heroes. We got a lot of heroes in recovery, but Paul O's one of mine. And, uh, I heard him say once from the podium, when I was new, I was brand new, he says, if you all get done before I do, feel free to excuse yourself. So, uh, I am sober long enough, and I, am, I have been given enough uh, wellness and enough recovery that it won't hurt my feelings if you feel like you have to go. Uh, 
See, I can just talk on and on and not say a damn thing. <laughs> 8.31, here we go. You might understand a little better about how... I, I promise there are no square pegs and round holes, I've come to believe. Uh, there are no mistakes in here. There's nobody... Uh, there's nothing wrong with anybody in here. That's my personal belief. We're all the perfect product of all our perceived experiences in life, real or imagined. You know, uh, we're, we're perfect. Uh, we, wouldn't any of us be the way we are if we hadn't had the life experiences that we perceived to get here? And so you'll understand a little more as I share my story with you why this is an issue for me. Uh, it's been a way of life for me. And, uh, you know, it's another one of those life changes that I'm trying to, trying to manifest. Kind of like taking a little weight off. God, I, I hope I do better. Well, I don't know which one I want to do better with. Uh, anyway, I am an alcoholic. My name's Otto, and I'm from the great state of Oklahoma. I had a couple of sweet Tulsans here this weekend, and some folks from Oklahoma City. Glad to see Nancy, my own buddy here this weekend. She had a nice, wonderful meeting. So. But uh, I'm uh, the second child of four, born to Fred and Doris Mers. Uh, I have two younger brothers and an older sister, and I grew up in a house that's just a little bit bigger than this stage. <laughs> and the racetrack, the dirt track, in Oklahoma City, the speedway was about where that back wall is. I grew up right across the street from the dirt track. Now, you know they don't build the racetracks in the middle of the nice part of town. <laughs> you know, they take the race cars in the dirt track and all that, and they put them out where the salvages and things are. And uh, so I, I kind of grew up on the other side of the tracks. I'm from very modest means, and uh, I'm not sorry about that. You know, I, I am so amazed by what my parents accomplished with what they had. You know, there was a time when I felt sorry for myself because we had so little. And today, in recovery, when I think of my parents and the sacrifices they made and the things they accomplished, it just overwhelms me. And it's another one of those attitude adjustments that I got in AA where today, you know, uh, my parents haven't changed, but my per perception of them has. Uh, and, you know, this is the good news in AA. Nothing has to change except the way we see things. If my past has to change, if my uh, disability has to change, if my financial status has to change, if my children have to behave differently, if anything has to change for me to be okay, I'm, I'm pretty much screwed, I think. So the only thing that can change is the way I see things. And I'm responsible for that, and I can do that with your help and with the higher power. And that's happened to me. Because when I came to you, I was an angry, angry man. And I was afraid of myself. Really. You know, you didn't want me to not drink. If I didn't have, I'm one of those guys that if I didn't have a drink and a Valium and a Xanax and a Demerol and a Librium and a joint, you'd go get me one. <laughs> I was so angry. And the only way I knew how to suppress my anger was to stay sedated. 
When I wasn't sedated, I didn't like me. I didn't like my life. I never, I'm not, I'm unlike many in that I never tried to quit drinking. I know there are many among us who have tried time and time and time and time again to stop drinking. I mean, we can all quit, stay and quit. That's the hard part, you know. And I never even tried to stop for a day. Never thought I needed to. Never had an idea that drinking was a problem for me. I had a lot of problems. But drinking wasn't one of them. I like to drink. I drink a lot. I drink all the time. I drink at inappropriate places, inappropriate times. Uh, I go places where drinking is not allowed and drink. I sneak drinks. Uh, I won't be without a drink. I'm the kind of guy who has a drink to get ready to go out and drink. <laughs> you know, I never went anywhere sober. You know, why go to a party and then have to catch up? <laughs> you know, I want to be doing it when I get there. Yeah? So, I like to drink, and I never saw it as a problem. Now, the key there is I never saw it as a problem. First person, I never saw it as a problem. A lot of other people did. Now, there's a lot of wonderful people who tried to help me. I mean, I've had people that wanted to help me and who have cared about me my whole life, and I didn't know that. But there's people who've told me, Otto, you, you drink too much. Otto, you eat too many pills. Otto, you need to, to slow down. And all they did was make me mad. Not, yeah, I didn't want to hear it. And when I would tell them, no, no, you don't understand. That's my pat answer. Any of y'all ever use that one? You don't understand? God, I think that was just tattooed on my forehead. You don't understand. Don't even try. Uh, because I had a thousand excuses for drinking and drugging the way I did. And if you were had my excuses for drinking and drugging, well, then you'd, you'd drink and drug too. Now, I used to think they were reasons for drinking and drugging. Today, I know that they were excuses for drinking and drugging because there's a lot of other people who had similar life experiences to mine who don't drink and drug the way I did. I didn't know that. You know, I've, one thing about me is I've always been selfish and self-centered. And I didn't know that either. I thought I was a pretty nice guy. I thought I was pretty generous. Of course, I've lived in a world of delusion my whole life. <laughs> and you'll understand that when I tell you about, a little bit about the home I grew up in. Uh, I used to call it an abusive home. And I've learned since then that maybe I don't know. You know, I don't, I have this distorted perception of how things were. And today I think I'm, a more accurate description is that I grew up in a home that was very chaotic. That's a pretty good description. There's a lot of chaos in the home I grew up in. There was a lot of conflict. Uh, my parents married and divorced each other three times before I got out of high school. You know, they didn't marry and divorce three times from other people. They married and divorced each other three times. You know, they couldn't live with each other. They couldn't live without each other. And drinking was a natural state in my home. That's what we did. That's not what I did. I mean, I was a kid, but that's what my mom and dad did. And that's what their friends did. And it didn't matter what was going on, whether it was a wedding or a wake, it involved drinking. And my father was a police officer. And I didn't see any problem with anything my dad did because he was my first higher power. I mean, he was, he's a police officer. You know, what my dad says is the law. And he's a powerful man. You know, my dad can blow a whistle and, and uh, raise his hand and, and you'll stop. All of you. 
And if you don't, he can get on a radio and get enough folks out here that you'll all stop. And I love my dad. I, I you know, he, I loved him in that uniform and that kind of gun. But, uh, you know, how can my dad be anything but right? And, you know, the fact that I never, ever heard him admit that he was wrong might have had an influence on me, too. Uh, but I very much wanted to please my father. And the things my father expected of me were, and the values he tried to instill in me were things like, uh, big boys don't cry. Don't you cry. Don't you cry. I'll give you something to cry about. God, I'm getting naked. This is going to be... Woo! <laughs> Don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. If you feel bad, there's something wrong with you. You know, if you're doing it right, everything will be okay. So don't feel bad. Don't cry. Don't feel bad. Don't be afraid. And so I didn't know that I that I was okay to be afraid. I'm not allowed to be afraid. I'm not supposed to be afraid. So therefore, I am not. And I never knew what it was like to be afraid. I know that I experienced it, but I never identified it. You know, uh, practice makes perfect. Where there's a will, there's a way. If anyone can, you can. Quitters never win and winners never quit. Exceptions are made for exceptional people. A man's word is his bond. Always give a man a good hand. Always tell the truth. These are some pretty tall orders. You know, give a man a good hand. You know, that's a sign of being a man. Always tell the truth. Well, I had a little more trouble with that one. <laughs> I learned early on that the truth would get me this. You know, and I learned early on, don't tell Dad the truth. You tell Dad whatever he wants to hear. And I, I became a liar at an early age. And I, I, I had developed an art of the, being able to figure out what you were going to say or what you wanted me to say. And if I was an OSU fan, Oklahoma State University where I went to school, and you were an OU fan, well, in the middle of the conversation, I would change to an OU fan because I didn't want to have any conflict with anyone. I didn't know how to do it. It, dis it discomforted me. So all I wanted was for you guys to like me. Why, why don't, what do I have to do to get my dad to like me, to be proud of me. My dad's one of those guys that never said thank you or never said good good job, never said way to go. My dad, I believe, is alcoholic. And, you know, my dad would tell me to do things and I would do what he said and then he would, he would hit me the next day for having done what he said because he didn't remember saying it. My dad was a blamer. I learned early on that it was a can't-win deal. In my home. Uh, he didn't know how to deal with his feelings. He didn't know how to feel bad. He didn't know it was okay to be sad. He didn't know it was okay to be afraid. He didn't know it was okay to cry. And he stuffed all that stuff down in him. And today I really believe that those things came out of him sideways. You know, he didn't process those emotions and they came out of him with the things he loved. And he hit his children and he hit his wife. I can remember hearing my mother scream and hearing his fists hitting her face. And then open up that door, looking down that converted garage into that bedroom where they lived, and, and seeing my father on my mother's chest with his knees holding her to the bed, and hitting her in the face with his fists, and her screaming, and blood covering the sheets and splattered on the wall. And he'd look at me and say, get back to your room. And I'd go. And the next day, my sister and my brothers and I, we'd get up and we don't say nothing. 
It's like it didn't happen. My mom bears the scars today of the beatings my father gave her. She's got all these broken veins and things in her face from the beatings my father gave her. And we lived in fear. Don't be afraid, but we lived in fear. Fear was the driving emotion for me as a young person. My great escape was high school. You know, when I finally was old enough to get away and start to have some activities of my own where Dad wasn't the coach, <laughs> you know, because Dad coached the Little League team. <sighs> I love my dad. But my dad would, he did things, he would make me stand and he'd throw baseballs at me. You know, just so that I wouldn't be afraid of getting hit. That made sense to him. <sighs> I still don't get it. <laughs> uh, Anyway, uh, to say that, you know, I went to high school and that was, that was my safe place. You know, when I went to high school and, you know, we didn't talk about what went on at home at high school. We didn't talk about what went on at home at church. You know, what goes on at home is family business. And we don't talk about that anywhere, but I'd go to high school and I'm top team. I'm the friendliest boy in my school. I'm class president. I MC the pep rallies. I head up the paper drives. I play sports. I'm voted the friendliest boy in my school. Uh, the teachers gave me gifts when I graduated. <laughs> I was a stud in high school. <laughs> so I liked high school. Uh, nobody would have ever known. No one would have ever suspected what was going on in my home by the way I lived in high school, other than the fact that uh, we didn't have... Well, that was just economic. You know, we didn't have nice things. I remember being embarrassed a lot of times because when you're a high-profile kid in school, uh, you know, I'm dancing in assemblies and doing those things, and I don't have the clothes, and I don't have the shoes, and I don't have the things that the other kids would have. And my mom would improvise. Uh, we danced in an assembly one time where all the guys wore white slacks and rah-rah shoes, and all the little cheerleader girls wore their little white skirts and t-shirts dyed to match the guys' t-shirts. And I didn't have white slacks and I didn't have raw, raw shoes. And so I danced in front of the school in painter's pants that a painter would wear were to hang his brushes and, or carpenter's pants and uh, in tennis shoes that were had the uh, raw, raw black painted on them. And when you want everybody to like you when you're high profile, it's kind of embarrassing, you know? Kind of embarrassing not to have the things the other kids had. And that's when I first discovered that alcohol could bring me some ease and comfort. You know, I, the, when I read the line in our book about how that first drink creates that feeling of ease and comfort. Boy, I could relate. Because when I would drink as a young man, and I was never a good drinker. I'm a puker. Uh, it didn't stop me, though. But when I did drink early on in, in my drinking career, it, it gave me that sense of ease and comfort. And you know, all the distress and the trauma at home didn't seem to matter anymore. And the fact that I didn't have the things that all the other kids had at school didn't seem to matter anymore. And life just plain old got easier for me. And so I drank and enjoyed it. Didn't particularly like the taste of it. I had to acquire a taste for it. But like it says in the book, I drank for the effect. I like what alcohol does to me. And it made my life what I thought was easier. I couldn't wait to get out of that home. Uh, 
I went to Oklahoma State University. I'm the first person in my family, either side, to ever graduate from high school, much less go to college. Uh, I'm the only member of a family that has his own teeth. <laughs> I've got a lot of it. I'm the only one in my family, too, you know. But I went off and got out of that house and went off to college, and all I did was get drunk. And I, I couldn't understand, you know, there was a lot of expectations put upon me, and I had a lot of desire to succeed. I didn't want to be like my father. Uh, I didn't want to be uh, poor, and I didn't want to be ignorant. I wanted to be educated and successful and have things and, uh, and be, a, uh, be a success. You know, I don't think I've ever done anything in my life set out to, to, to fail. I've always wanted to be a success in my life. I've tried the best I could. I've danced as fast as I could. I've tried to associate with the best people I could, but it just never seemed to work for me. Uh, so I'm not making real good grades in school. I got drafted into the service. And in 1967-68, that's not a good time to get drafted because it was right in the middle of the, of the Vietnam conflict. And I went to Vietnam as an infantry squad leader. I, I dodged it as long as I could. I went to basic training, advanced infantry training. I couldn't believe they put me in the infantry to start with. Is there anybody in here that's just really lucky? Yeah. I know we got a lottery winner in here somewhere, but I'm not going to point. <laughs> I don't know if that's good luck or not. If winning the lottery probably killed me. But, uh, you know, I've never really been lucky. And uh, I thought they had made me a general's aide. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm class president, top team student, council MC, pepper, alley, tenant, paper drives. I'd make a good general's aide. They could have put me in charge of the NCO club. I can do that. It would have been a rocking joint. Let me tell you, we'd have had a ball. I like cars. Put me in the motor pool. I've been a racing fan since I was old enough to watch them pull them into the track. And uh, they didn't do that. They made me an infantry money. <sighs> you know, I didn't want to go to Vietnam as an infantryman, so I did everything I could do to keep them going. I went to NCOCS and became a Betty Crocker sergeant. If there's any veterans in here, well, you know what a Betty Crocker sergeant is. That's somebody that gets a lot of stripes and authority. Didn't earn it. Don't know what he's doing. <laughs> uh, but I, I went to school for 16 weeks or something, became a sergeant. Because, you see, I'm a leader. I'm a natural-born leader. That's another way of saying I don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> I don't trust you. And I would, I'll be darned if I... That's good. I'll be darned if I'm going to go to Vietnam as an infantryman and let somebody else be in charge of where I go and what I do. And so I went to Vietnam as the leader. And uh, I've got a squad of nine men. And, you know, this is more my best thinking that doesn't work. Because I've got nine men in my squad. We're in a fire base in, uh, in, in our platoon. We'd go out three days and two nights and come back to the fire base and get three different guys out of my squad. And I'd go out for three days and two nights with them and I'd bring them back. Then I'd get another three and go out and recon three days and two nights, come back with them. And then the whole squad would go out together three days and two nights. And then we'd come back and then the whole platoon would go out three days and two nights. Now, who's out there every damn night? <laughs> who's, I mean, I'm eating sea rations every day. Every time there's a firefight, I'm in it. And, you know, the other guys, the privates, are spending half their time at the fire base eating hots. 
you know? So once again, my best thinking sucks. I just, I, there came a point in time in recovery when I had to just surrender that my best thinking isn't any good. But Vietnam was a horrible experience. You know, uh, there was just no way I could prepare myself for war. I don't think there was any way they could have prepared any of us. I grew up in a pretty violent home. And my father was vicious. I mean, he taught all of us boys to fight. And he, and he taught us, I never lost a fight. He, he made us mean. He'd make us fight with each other. I don't know if he'd, he'd put us out in the backyard and just make us fight. And I mean fight, not wrestle. Fight. And my father's teaching me as a young man how to kill people. That was part of my growing up training. You know, how to protect yourself, how to kill people. But I promise you, all the training and all the preparation could not have prepared me for the horrors of combat in Vietnam. And I saw and did things over there that, that I, I just couldn't be prepared for. You know, but now the movies are pretty graphic. But when I was a kid, the movies were a little soft. You know, I mean, John Wayne, you know, he Chanel fell down and he got a medal. You know, uh, it wasn't like that. And uh, Vietnam affected me very much. Uh, I had some experiences there that, that haunted me. And I, I receive a disability from the Veterans Administration today for uh, 50% for post-traumatic stress disability for the psychic, psychiatric uh, traumas experienced there. And I, I didn't have a lot of skills for coping. You know, because, see, I'm not afraid. I'm in combat in Vietnam, and I'm not afraid. And uh, I never lost a fight. And I did insane things, and I'm decorated for heroic acts. And, you know, all they were was a, a kid that was scared to death uh, acting out and not knowing it. But there was one particular situation where we went in on a hot LZ, and uh, it was a bad, it was a bad plan to go with. And when we got there, the uh, they had us badly outnumbered, and there was a very small LZ. It had just been blown with bombs. It wasn't a flat area, a clear area. It was just broken trees and twisted timber on a mountainside. And before very many of us got in on the ground, the rockets, enemy rockets, started coming out of the trees and hitting those helicopters. And they're down on the ground, and they're burning, and the LZ's blocked. And there's just a, just a handful of us in, and we're in big trouble. And the CO radios down and he tells, I'm the squad leader. I'm in charge, guys. And he, he uh, it would have to be my squad turn to be first in. And, uh, he says, we're going to drop firefighting equipment and we're going to drop some C4 into you. That's plastic explosives. And we need you guys to take down some trees and enlarge that landing zone and get some of the fires out so that we can get some more help into you because, you know, you're, you're in a bad spot. And, uh, you need to be in there before dark. So he comes hovering over the LZ and he's trying to drop firefighting equipment to us in this C4 and I'm watching him see where he drops it and out of the trees comes a rocket and hits that helicopter and it twists and wobbles and it falls into the fire with the rest of it. And there was a young man that was standing on the slick of that helicopter watching the rotors talking to the pilot helping keep those rotors out of the trees so they could get low enough to make that drop. When that rocket hit right under him it blew him out the door. And he fell from treetop level almost into the end of the jungle. And a kid named Henderson and I, we jumped up and uh, we went looking for him. And uh, we found him and he's a mess. He is a mess. Uh, now I know that you don't have to go to combat to see horrible things. 
But this was my horrible thing. Uh, both his legs were blown off. One of his arms was almost severed off. Uh, his face was destroyed. Top of his head was destroyed. And uh, he's, he's still alive. And he's gurgling and he's making noises and he's crying. And we used our bootlaces to put tourniquets on his legs to stop the bleeding. And we put pressure all over him to stop the bleeding. And we tried to muffle his cries because we didn't want him to draw fire. And the medic finally came and, and, and took that kid. And uh, I never saw him again. Uh, except at night when I'd go to sleep. Or try to go to sleep. And uh, so you don't understand. I had these nightmares, and I, I could use a drink to help me get to sleep. I always thought I had a sleep disorder. That's my problem. You know, I don't have a drinking problem. I have a sleep disorder. Drinking helped me get to sleep, you know, a few pills, and have a drink. Because I had heart, you know, if I wasn't thinking about him, I was thinking about my mama and my daddy. The next day I was shot in that same... That same contact with the enemy, I walked up on an enemy position and short burst of machine gun fire rang out and I was hit twice. One bullet went right through my hip joint, another bullet went right through my ankle joint. And if you've ever heard the expression, I'm going to blow your rear off. <laughs> I'm going to blow your rear off. Well, it's true. <laughs> it happens. Uh, uh, that Those um, high-velocity rounds ripped me up pretty good. And uh, they dusted me off and sent me to a hospital in Yakota, Japan. I was there seven weeks. Then they sent me to a hospital in California and a hospital in Texas. I wind up at Fort Walters, I think it's called. And then I uh, got to uh, Reynolds Army Hospital in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, so I could be close to my family. God. Don't you cry. Don't you be afraid. Uh, I spent the first nine months of my recovery in a cast from my chest down. Plaster from my chest down. It's called a body cast or a spica. And I couldn't move anything but my arms for nine months. They had uh, windows in that cast, what they call windows, where they could open it up and try to fight this infection that I had. And I had a gross staph infection. It was a very dirty wound. And they just kept cutting pieces of me off, trying to get rid of this infection. But the medicines they had back then weren't very good. And I couldn't heal. And uh, I was... When I turned 21, I'd been in the hospital four months. And when I turned 22, I was still there. And I'm angry. And I've known a lot of pain. And I'm still not whole. I had an open draining wound in my buttocks for seven years. I wear, I wear my billfold over here so that it looks like I've got something over there. <laughs> but I promise you there's nobody home over there. Uh, but for those seven years I used to wear large padded gauze bandages to catch the pus so that it wouldn't run out on my clothes. And it hurts. It's very painful. Uh, I've lived with chronic pain, and I know there's people in here that have chronic pain. I lived with chronic pain from the age 20 on. 
they did the very best they could do to, to heal my wounds. And I want to tell you something. I'll just stop right now because I didn't want to miss the opportunity to tell you. Somebody, a friend of mine asked me to talk about the miracles. And Jim said when this started this week to, to expect a miracle while you're here. You know, that somebody's going to say something or you're going to hear something that's going to change your life while you're here this week. And I, I you know, that's okay. That's Jim. <laughs> Old full of bull, bull Jim. <laughs> well, it happened to me Tuesday night while Wayne was telling his story. And I don't know what Wayne said, but when he was finished, I had to go out on that balcony and cry. Because that, that, those two years in that hospital was 1968, 9, and 70. And I've been mad about that for 32 years. Tuesday night, I had that attitude adjustment, that psychic change, that all of a sudden my perception was altered. And instead of seeing myself as a victim suffering through all those surgeries and all those all that pain and all that time, for the first time in my life, I saw myself as a young man who received two years of incredible care. People, hundreds of people made incredible sacrifices in time and energy and love and resources to make me holy as best they could. I want you to know that's a gift. <laughs> Those are the kind of gifts I've been getting for 17 years in the program of recovery. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a little lighter on my feet now. <laughs> just a little lighter on my feet now because that's just another little piece of that anger that was in me when I got here that's been t- taken care of. I've had a lot of anger taken care of. I think I had a lot of things to be angry about. You know, and I'm the kind of guy that used to have a chorus of violins that followed him around all the bars, you know. <laughs> and I, I, one of these days I'm going to get... Nobody knows the trouble I've seen on a really sad harmonica. Let it play in the background while I'm doing my talk up here someday. Because I'm also a member of Al-Anon. And uh, I've been going to Al-Anon meetings now for 16 years. And my home group is the Legacy Al-Anon family group of Plano, Texas. And it's a pretty new group that we just recently started. And it's growing like a weed, and I'm so glad. Because I love Al-Anon. In the, in the eighth step of our 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12, it says that uh, defective relationships are the cause of most all our problems, including our alcoholism. And I, to me, that kind of says we drink at people. Uh, and for me, what happened was uh, I got sober and nobody else in my family did. And it was driving me nuts. You know, like I told you, I didn't ever try to quit drinking. I never had a clue that I had a problem. And so I never knew or thought much about alcoholism. I didn't know my dad was alcoholic. I just thought he's a mean son of a gun. (laughs) 
I'm so proud. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I know that. <laughs> uh, anybody want to kickstart me here? I don't have a problem. What are you talking about? Uh, no, I, I got, nobody else got sober, and so I had about eight months of sobriety. My sponsor says, Otto, you might want to check out the Al-Anon in there, because it, you know, I'm, I'm loving getting sober, really. I mean, I'm one of these guys that say, you know, if you completely give yourself to this simple program, you know, I did. Uh, I mean, when you, when I found you guys, man, I jumped in with both feet, because I was desperate. I had run out of options. You know, I, I had no option. I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. And when I found out from you guys that I was, it was like one of those, Oh boy, it was good news for me. You know, I mean, I tried everything else. I changed wives, I changed hobbies, I changed hangouts, I changed friends, I changed brands, I changed music, the way I wear my hair, where I live. I changed everything I knew to change, trying to get happy. And it didn't work. And I loathed myself. I hated me for not being able to wrestle some kind of happiness out of my life. And when I went to this treatment center against my will, Knowing full well that I don't have a drinking and drug problem, if you had lived my life, you'd, I mean. <laughs> I mean, it hurts. I'm the kind of guy, I mean, literally, I would walk into, I love to travel. Because if I walk into a little town hospital, and you go in the emergency room, and I drop my pants, they'll give me whatever I want. Because <laughs> it's ugly. You know, they go, oh, shit, pull your pants out. <laughs> little dim roll, yeah, I can see that, yeah. Anything else you want, yeah. God, I'm really having trouble keeping my thoughts together. Where'd we go? My sponsor said, why don't you go to Alan? Okay. And uh, I just love Alan. Because, see, when I would walk into my mom's house, and they weren't as excited about the idea of our family being alcoholic as I was. <laughs> they weren't as enthusiastic about the idea of everybody quitting drinking as I was. I mean, my, it was terribly painful. I mean, my fingers would would make knots and I get knots in my shoulders and my and you know and I just kind of tense up. And my toes would curl up inside my boots and you know. But my mom and dad would talk and it's like you know. It, getting sober was not fun and hanging out with my family and so you know I had to break break breaks. And I had to kind of dissociate, detach, not just detach, I had to dissociate from my family of origin for a while so I could heal and acquire some recovery and get enough strength and enough spirituality that I could begin to love my parents even though they weren't lovable. Uh, my whole family's eaten up with this disease. You know, when my dad left for the last time, my little brother Jack would come in and batter my mother. And he'd take her purse or her stereo or her TV or whatever he needed to buy his drugs or his, his drink. And, uh, of course, who, mom would always call me, you know. Uh, and I, I'm the hero child, so I'd go to rescue my mother. And uh, I used to sleep with pistols. Fear my own brothers. 
because they're, they're, they act out so badly in their disease. This one particular night, my mom called me and my brother had been over there and beat her up. And, and the house was all tore up and the, and the Bible's tore up and strewn all over the house. And, and my, my mom calls me and my brother's passed out on the floor. And he's got paint stuck all around his lips. He's been huffing. He's progressed in his disease to the point where he sprays paint in a little bag and then huffs it to get high. Because, I mean, he rode his horse pretty much all the way to the bottom. And uh, We found that he'd been living in the doghouse behind my mother's house. I love my brother. But I called the police and they arrested him again. And they served a warrant on him for using stolen credit cards. Now, we were quite, my whole family really embarrassed my father. I mean, it was hard to be a policeman and have kids like us. You know? <laughs> uh, anyway, I asked, went before the judge I, as they were pros, uh, announcing her pros, passing sentence on him. And I uh, stood in front of the judge and I said, Your Honor, please incarcerate my brother. Lock him up. He's a glue sniffer and a paint sniffer and he uses drugs and he stays drunk. And he batters my mother, and he's, he damn near killed my uncle last month who was trying to give him a job and help him. You've had him here a dozen times. Please, please help my brother. My mom stood in the back of the courtroom just bawling her eyes. But I love my mom. I love my brother. And I really, I, I needed help. I want to help everybody. You can't we all just get along. Uh, <laughs> and the judge says, this is a really unusual request. You know, usually the family's here asking for some kind of a leniency or something, you know. And I said, no, I, you know, put my brother somewhere where he'll get help, please. And I still don't know anything about drug addiction or alcoholism, but the judge said, two years in the state penitentiary. And they sent my brother to Big Mac in McAllister, Oklahoma, where they put him to work painting. <laughs> Now, this is the unmanageability in our lives. You know, my best plans don't work. My best thinking sucks. It don't matter how hard I try, things don't work out for me. See, and you notice I said it's all about me. It's all about me. Selfish, self-centered. They put my brother to work painting. Guess what he did? He sniffed up and got high, and they took him and put him in a holding cell. They're going to transfer him back to maximum security, and while he was there... He took a t-shirt and he hanged himself. He took his own life. You know, he got to that stepping off point and then there wasn't anybody there to, to help him. Uh, and I felt so responsible. I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've been out of my hula hoop for a long time. <laughs> you know, I love Wayne's story about the hula hoop. I'm stealing that one, boy. That one's going back to the Al-Anon meetings with me. We're going to get a hula hoop and hang it on the wall and get it out on a regular basis and set it down there for my friends. Uh, you know, I just knew I should have called. I just knew I should have written. I just knew I should have visited. I should have, I should have, I should have, I should have, I should have. You know, and if it's just another thing on the string of of things that would keep me awake at night. If it wasn't my dad beating my mom or the combat in Vietnam or the the months of laying in that hospital bed or the my brother twisting on that T-shirt, there was always something haunting me. And give me a drink. Plus, my leg hurts. I mean, it hurts. You know, they, they couldn't fix it. I've just got this mush pile for a hip. And it hurts. 
<laughs> the pain was real. Uh, anyway, I wound up in this treatment center against my will, not thinking I had a problem. Uh, I have a lot of problems breaking it, one of them. And a person from AA, uh, I was 37, and it was a 73-year-old black man. Uh, well, I don't know what me and a 73-year-old black man have in common, but he came up to do what I'm doing tonight, and that's to share his story. And when he finished, I was an alcoholic. You know, that's the magic of AA. That's why AA can do what all those people have been trying to do for me for years, but couldn't do. One alcoholic talking to another. In the first person. That's what makes it work. Anytime somebody says, Otto, you, I turn them off. Because you don't understand. You ain't been where I've been, and I ain't ever told the truth. You don't know nothing about me, or my situation, or how things are. But when he told me about himself, and he said, Otto, I, it gave me permission to listen. God, he sounded a lot like me. You know, and he had words to describe those feelings and things that I didn't have words for. I mean, my vocabulary is real small. Happy, mad. You know? There ain't many emotions in between there for me at age 37, three times divorced. My brothers are married and divorced. Divorced and married and married and divorced and married and divorced. My sister's married and divorced and married and divorced and married. And divorced and married. You know, it's family disease. <laughs> So many things I want to say, and it's. I haven't got so. Okay, I'm in a treatment center. I am an alcoholic. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, for me, it was good news. It was good news, and I was excited to finally have an answer because I've been looking for an answer to my problems. I got lots of problems and no answers. And this guy had an answer. And uh, they said, uh, in this treatment center, they said, well, what you do is get your program recovery. You stop drinking, and you go to meetings, you get your sponsor, you read the big book. And you work the 12 steps as a program of recovery, a program of life. And what happens is, is, is you'll stay sober and you'll change and you'll learn to live life on life's terms. Well, that sounded pretty good to me. You know, I'm, I'm kind of an overachiever and a perfectionist. And I figure I'll be tops in my class in the, this year's AA class. And so, I, I mean, when I got out of treatment, I didn't even go home. I was really fearful that I'd drink. I wanted to be successful in sobriety. And so instead of going home, I went right straight to the Western Club in Oklahoma City. I mean, it's open all day, and that's where I went. And I hung out there. And then in those 30 days and a 1,000 nights, I did that. Because it was real easy to stay sober at the club. It was real hard to live with just me at night at home. Because, see, when I decided to stop drinking, it didn't change anything. It didn't change anything except that I'm not taking drugs and alcohol to help me get to sleep at night. And at night, all those thoughts and all those beliefs and everything come back to me. And I loved being at the clubhouse. I didn't like being at home. And I was pretty foggy. When I, I'm a college graduate, but when I got sober, I was, I was um, illiterate. I couldn't read. I was so befogged by all the drugs and alcohol I'd done that when my eyes would move across the page, but it's not recording nothing. I have no memory. Uh, I would read it, and I could understand it, but I wouldn't remember it. And uh, so I, it took me a while to start to comprehend even the things that were going on besides fellowship. 
And so they suggested, this is the program of recovery, that we work these 12 steps that were on the wall at the Western Club. And as I'm looking at those 12 steps for the first time, I'm probably 35, 40 days sober, and I'm really starting to look at them, and it's, you know, they were good news to me. We admitted we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. Whew. That's good news. I thought I was just a screw up. I just thought, that's okay. I was just a screw up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just thought I, I was, I, I couldn't do it right. You know, this self-loathing that I had. And that first step gave me permission to be who I was. You know, I'm not supposed to be able to drink successfully. I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, and I'm, my life's unmanageable. It's not that I've been doing it wrong. Our lives are unmanageable. Every life is unmanageable. Not just the alcoholics. We just get more than our fair share of unmanageability because of all we create. I mean, you know, the lion that can't catch the little deer, his life's unmanageable. The little deer that can't outrun the lion, his life's unmanageable. There's unmanageability in every life. But when you lie, cheat, and steal and drink the way I did, you get more than your share of unmanageability. And that's why my life became so unlivable. Cain and Blue Power Greater ourselves could restore us to sanity. My nickname was Crazy Otto. I had it painted on the back of my race cars. Crazy Otto. Headlines in the racing news. Crazy Otto. Yeah, I got no problem with being crazy. I like being crazy. Don't mess with him. He's crazy. People don't mess with you when you're crazy. He's a Vietnam vet. Don't mess with him. He's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and crazy people can drink. <laughs> it's okay to be crazy. Blew right through two. Three, medicine, turn our little lives over to the care of God. God, 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 damn. <laughs> it's a God deal. Boy, I don't know that I had ever been more angry. I could not believe you all had duped me into this deal. It's a God deal. Yeah, I went to treatment at a Catholic hospital. I should have went to Schick. You go to a churchy hospital, you're going to get a churchy solution, and I don't believe in God. If there's a God, he must be a terrorist. You know, where's he been? Where was he when my dad's beating my mother? Where was he when my friends were dying in Vietnam? Where was he when I lay in that hospital for all those years? Where was he when my brother hanged himself on that t-shirt? Where was he when Hitler was doing the Jews? Where is he when all this injustice and trauma and tragedy is going on in the world? Why, why are there earthquakes and hurricanes and, and forest fires and and Floods and tragedies and mass murderers. And I mean, God, I don't believe in God. I was so mad. And, you know, I didn't know what to do. I'm just mad. I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't have another program I can opt to. But... <laughs> you know, it's amazing how loving we are. You guys loved me when I wasn't lovable. When I was frightened and angry and confused and, and didn't know what to do and I was uncomfortable and, and, and disappointed and frustrated and, you know, you guys just love me and it's okay for me to be that way. And, uh, a guy named Mike, Mike F. from the Western Club, he's no guru or he's no, you know, 
AA wheel or nothing. He was just another drunk that was in there getting sober with me. And he saw my anger, and I was letting everybody see it. And, <laughs> and he sat down with me. He said, what are you so mad about? And so I told him. I told him all these stories I've been telling you guys, you know, about all that's happened in my life. And, and you know, and, and then the minister at my church, when I went to church as a kid, he died in a plane crash. We show up at church Sunday, and he died in the plane crash Saturday night. And what good did God do him? You know, I mean, here's God's right-hand man. What good did God do him? I had a thousand reasons why. You know, when I, the day I got shot, I was lost in the jungle. And I walked up on that machine gun, and I don't think they wanted to shoot me. But if they didn't shoot me, I'm going to fall in their hole. And so that short burst of machine gun fire ran and cut me in two. My first thought when I was shot, that moment, was I've been shot. <laughs> Pretty sharp squad leader, let me tell you. <laughs> Second thought, and this is actually this is my thinking at that moment as I lay there on the jungle floor bleeding to death. Second thought, God help me. Third thought. There is no God. Laying there in a jungle floor, cut in two, bleeding to death, alone, just for me to Walter from the enemy. I'm listening to him jabber. I can feel that gun pointed at the top of my head because my helmet went flying. I got on a fresh ruck that spun me around. They get out of their hole. They come taking knives and cut the straps off my ruck, cut my knife off my wrist, drug it off of me, went and got back in their hole right there. And at that moment, I was not fearful enough or desperate enough or willing to believe that there might be a God who could help me. And at that moment, I became a self-reliant man. God was no longer an issue for me. I had quested about God. I'd gone to church. I'd asked questions. I'd been in... Uh, I'd looked for God. Yeah? Never, never really found Him. I mean, I had a thousand excuses why I couldn't find Him. You know, my little brother... Carl, Jack and Carl, they, they were sick. You live in a home like I grew up in with all the chaos and the stress, you get sick. You get ulcers. You get illnesses. My little brother lived in a convalescent home for years. They took out most of his intestines and they took out most of his rectum. And he'd crap. He'd have bowel movements out this little bang in his side. You know, called a colostomy. And you know, that's not fair for a little kid. And we'd go to the children's hospital to see him and there's thalidomide babies there and there's cancer kids and burn kids and there's just sick kids at this hospital and then we'd go to church on Sunday and we'd sing Jesus loves the little children I don't get it you know, I mean I am totally confused and on September 22nd 1968 I stopped being confused I made a decision just like we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God I made a decision that there is no God and I was on my own from that point it was no longer a question for me but I'm here to tell you that this disease brought me to my knees. And I was more afraid of living with my alcoholism than I was of dying that day in Vietnam. And it made me willing to look and consider again. And Mike was the instrument that God used to give me a way to look. Because as Mike listened to me sing my sad song and explain to him why there couldn't be a God, he says, well, Otto, you don't have to believe in the God you gave up on you don't have to believe in the God you gave up on in Vietnam that day. The third step says, as we understood him. What would God have to be? 
for you to take a chance and try and turn your will and your life over to his care. Uh, you are really stupid. You know, my whole life I thought it was my job to figure out what God wanted me to do. What does dad want me to do? I thought that God was like my dad, like my earthly father. If I could only please you, I could win your grace. Yeah, if I could only please you, you'd love me and treat me kindly. But I can't do it. So to heck with you. (laughs) Doesn't sound as good to me, but it's working. (laughs) And so, he says, well, he says, this is what we do in this program. He says, you know, we find the God of our understanding. He says, I'm not going to tell you or expect you to believe in my God. Your sponsor's not going to try to help you find his God. These steps are to help you find your God. Why don't you give some thought to what God might have to be for you to be willing to try? And so I had not a lot of other options, and I did some writing. Yeah, and I've always been selfish. My motives have never been good. I've always had self-centered motives. And my motives were, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do everything you guys tell me to do. And when I get drunk, I'm suing. I'm suing. I'm going to own AA. And that's, I'm telling you, that just as truthful as I stand here. That was my motives behind doing what I was supposed to do. Like I'm going to enjoy opening. <laughs> But uh, I documented everything I did. I, you know, I couldn't read, so I'd get buddies from the treatment center. We'd come up, we'd read out loud, and I'd document it. Red, lawyer will need that. And Red, they called my sponsor, 237. I'd say, he'll need that. Been to a meeting. Yep, yep, mark the pages we've been reading. The only thing I couldn't document was my prayer, because I wasn't about to let anybody see me pray. Too embarrassed. But what I came up with was if God was all-powerful, if he could do anything, and with all his power, all he wanted was for me to stay sober, and then the catch, there's always a catch, the catch is to stay sober and like it. You know, there's one thing to stay sober, there's another thing to stay sober and liking it. And that was my hook. And when I showed that to Mike, I fully expected him to say, no, 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 no Disneyland gods, come on, pick a team. What are you going to be? Baptist, Hindu, Muslim, Christian. Come on. What are you going to be? Buddhist? What do you want to be? Come on. Don't pick the wrong team. Killing each other all over the world. Come on. Take a team. That's not what he said. He said, that's your God. A God that's all-powerful. He can do anything with all his power. All he wants is for you to stay sober and like it. And I did not believe for one minute that it would work. But I continued to do as you said. I got on my knees and I made a decision, a conscious decision, to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, being all-powerful and wanting for me to be sober and happy. Not expecting it to work, but expecting to win the lawsuit. (laughs) And I would go through my days. I really wanted it to work. I wanted it to work. I would go through my days literally looking over my shoulder. Because... I haven't looked in a while, and I'm asking every day, God, help me. Keep me sober. You scary dude, you. <laughs> Looking for a little evidence here of what's going on. And uh, things were going on. 
You know, it's amazing how once I stopped to look, I began to see. Yeah, you heard the expression, God didn't make too hard a turn for those that seek Him. Man, I mean, He came in with floodlights and bands. And, <laughs> and it was easy for me to begin to see. All I had to do was be willing to see. And it started a journey for me. Just that little crack of willingness when I opened the door started a journey for me where everything's been made right in my life. You know, in the long version of the serenity prayer, there's more to it than what we say in our meetings, in the long version it says that God will make everything right if we will completely give ourselves to Him. That's prayer. Everything. That's a big order. But I can tell you today that He has made everything right in my life. And it took me an hour to get the miracle. I'm so disappointed. Anybody need to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Feel free. I might have to go. <laughs> I just want to share some miracles with you. This is the magic. How do you get from where I was to a life that's worth living? How do you get from all that anger to a life of joy? How do you get where you don't have any friends and you're isolated and alienated and your kids won't talk to you to a place where your life's just filled with love and caring and sharing and intimacy. You know, it happened to me right in here, working these 12 steps. Uh, that's not the God that I believe in today. The little Disneyland God that I kind of started with. But, you know, all you have to have is a starting place. All you have to have is a starting place. And if we work the steps, we have a spiritual awakening as a result of working the steps. It's not a result, one of many, it's the result. It's the whole purpose of working the steps. If you just want to get sober, don't drink. Damn, this thing I ever heard. I have yet to get drunk on a day I didn't drink. And it don't take no steps to do that. You know, I have yet to get loaded on a day I didn't use. But I needed more than that. Because I didn't like my life sober. I didn't like life on life's terms. And so I needed to work these steps. And I did. And I worked the fourth step and I found out that my problems were in my own making. I had always felt like a victim. I mean, I wore the victim's veil. It was pretty. I kept several in the trunk. I never ran out of victim's veils. And uh, it was always good for a drink somewhere. And uh, I worked this fourth step and I found out, you know, that I'm... Uh, it's not them. My sponsor says, first I said, I said, I'm not going to Vietnam. No Vietnam in my four-step. We ain't going there. He said, you don't have to. He says, just get a pencil and paper and write down everybody there pissed you off. That's what he said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and I did that, and I did it with some joy. And uh, I got to about a hundred names, you know, everybody I knew. And, <laughs> and then he says, okay, now I want you to write down why you're angry. You know, why it made you angry. And I said, well, look what they did. And he says, no, that's what they did. Why did it make you angry? My wife left me for another man. That's what she did. Why are you angry? I don't get it, you know. He says, Otto, he says, if you'd wanted her to leave, 
If you had you another woman and you wanted her to leave and she left, then you'd be happy. I said, yeah. He says, but you didn't want her to go. You're angry. You're hurt. That's why you're angry. That's why you're mad. That's why you feel abused and put upon. You're not getting what you want. He says, now take those other hundred and do the same thing. And it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. You know, people don't do what I want and I get mad. Don't matter whether what I want is right or wrong or good or bad or indifferent. It's always selfish. And he says, okay, now put down over here in the fourth column your part in it. Well, I don't have no part in none of it. I'm a good guy. <laughs> you know, I'm just a guy that can't catch a break. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the good brother. I'm the hero child of my family. I didn't do it. He says, no, well, you, you might want to pray and write. And I discovered, you know, that it's kind of like if the lines at the grocery store have to get shorter for me to enjoy going to the grocery store, I'm straight. <laughs> you know, if my mom has to not drink tonight for me to love my mom, I don't get to. Because it's, it's uh, 10.30 at my mom's house, and I promise you she's drunk. You know, if they have to change for me to be happy, I'm in trouble. And so what I found in that fourth column was, uh, you know, I'm intolerant, I'm impatient, I'm demanding, I'm controlling, I have unrealistic expectations, uh, I'm fanciful, I have all these things about me. And if, if those will change, then the emotion that comes with the other people's behavior changes. And that's all that has to change. And that, for me, was good news. It's good news, folks. It ain't them. If they have to change, I'm in trouble. But if I can change. If I can become more tolerant, patient, understanding, loving, kind, and gentle, just like you were to me when I came in here, whether I'm lovable or not, then I get to know the joy of peace. And it says in our book that we get to know peace. I know Jim, but we don't live together. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know peace. I don't have it all the time, but I know peace. I can go there. I can go visit Jim, and I can go to a place that's peaceful for me today, too. But, you know, the good news is that I found out the things that were wrong with me. I found out how frightened I am. At 38 years old, doing my four-step inventory, I did not believe that I had ever been afraid. And when I told you I'm not afraid, I'm not lying. You know, our book talks, or people talk about denial, but our book talks about delusion. And for me, delusion is that the truth, my truth, just wasn't real. And if you asked me, are you afraid? I said, no. And my sponsor said, well, just write down something. I ain't going to write down. I ain't scared of nothing. I'll whip your rear. And uh, he said, well, write down something. I wrote, snakes. Spiders. The dark. Pain. Pencils are magic. Pencils are magic in recovery. I, mean, I ended up with this long sheet of stuff I'm afraid of. I'm afraid you won't laugh when I'm trying to be funny. I'm afraid you will laugh when I'm not trying to be funny. You know, I'm afraid I'm not going to have any money. I'm afraid I'm going to die. I'm afraid I'm going to be burned. I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to be suffered. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have a woman. I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to perform. I'm afraid, God, I'm afraid of everything. And I never knew that before. And then my father says, why? I don't know. <laughs> It's in the book, right there. Self-reliance fails. Now, you've been running on self-propulsion. You need to find a power greater than yourself that can do for you what you can. And I'm continuing to look. I'm looking, but I'm not, not finding. So anyway, I worked these steps, and what happened was, 
uh, I began to have spiritual experiences. And as a result of all these spiritual experiences, I believe I've had a spiritual awakening of the educational variety. You add them all together, and I see things differently. And just to give you a few examples, I know I've talked a long time, and I'm sorry. Uh, I would like to have been here a half hour ago. But I just want to tell you, you know, I can't tell you the miracles of recovery if I don't tell you what was wrong. You know, it's no big deal that I can see if I didn't tell you that I was blind. And that's kind of my philosophy, even though it really makes your rear end sore. You know? uh, but... Uh, a few years ago, my father died. And when my father died, I buried a loved one. Not a lovable one. He never became lovable. My father was a sick, nasty, vulgar alcoholic to the extreme in the latest, latest stages of his disease when he died. And I had known the joy of loving my father for years in my recovery. And when I buried him, I buried a loved one. See, I learned to love him the way you loved me when I got here. And I learned to do that by working with the newcomer. I had been sober about ten months and a kid came in and says, where do you get those big books? I said, I'll take you and show you. Went and got him a big book. He says, would you be my sponsor? I know. I haven't been sober long enough to be your sponsor. But I was so flattered I called my sponsor to tell him I'd been asked to be a sponsor, you know. I'm gonna brag on that one. Whoa, I've got it going on, man. I'm looking good. He says, What'd you tell him? I said, No. He says, Well you go find him. He says, What step was he on? I said, Well I guess he's on one. He says, What step are you on? I said, I'm on eight. He says, Well you can help him with one through seven. And I did. You know, when I found that kid, I said, I'll work with you. And it wasn't until I started working with him that I really went to work. You know, I'm so sick, I wouldn't do for me the things that need to be done because I don't like me. You know, I don't care a lot for me. And I'm not very motivated to take care of me. I haven't ever been very good to myself. But for him, I'd bust chops. And I got in the book and I learned that I could tell him. And what happened was, because I'm trying to help him, I began to get better. And something else really magical happened. I fell in love with him. I fell in love with this kid. He got nothing. I promise you, the guys with the Bentleys and the Porsches never come ask me to be their sponsor. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. You know, the guys that come in dressed like Walter don't go, Hey, Otto, over here. Come on, would you help me out? You, know? you got it going. No, mine are the guys that come in and need a ride to the laundromat, you know, to do a load of laundry, you know. But I fall in love with this kid. I had never, I have told a lot of people in my life that I love you. And I had no clue what it was. I always thought it was a feeling down in here, you know? <laughs> you know, and if you can create this warm fuzzy down in here, you know, then I will treat you lovingly, okay? But it, it comes from your, you know, I, it, you create it, not me, you know? And there's a lot of people that don't deserve my love because they can't create that warm fuzzy thing. <laughs> and what I found out was, is that, you know, this was the magic. God is not like my earthly father. God loved me because he's God, not because I'm good. This, this is the God I found working the 12 steps. This is my God. You don't have to find this one. Find your own. You borrow mine, but the God that I found 
is a God that loves me no matter what. Who knows I'm fine. That I'm the perfect product of all my perceived experiences. And all I have to do is avail myself of his love. And that the joy is in the loving, not in being loved. FAA. The joy is in the loving. And so, you know, if you'll let me love you, I don't know you. But if you'll let me love you, I will. Because I know the joy of loving you today. And I found the joy of loving my father when he wasn't lovable. I'd be taking a meeting to the prison in El Reno, Oklahoma. And on the way back, I'd stop at the tavern where my dad is. He'd be sitting on his bar stool with his little burr haircut, drunk on his, and I'd sit down next to him and have a coke and just scratch his old burr head because I love my dad. Yeah, he really did the best he could. I believe that. And he'd look over at me and go, yeah, it really pisses me off that you. You remember when you brought those house papers from your mother for me to sign? No, Dad, but get it off your chest, you know. I mean, this guy's got resentment he's been carrying since I was six, you know. And I know how painful that is. And it didn't bother me anymore. It didn't hurt me anymore. It didn't hurt me. My dad couldn't hurt me anymore. There, my dad, I had so much pain because I couldn't, those unrealistic expectations, those demands I put upon my father that I couldn't get. And when I buried my father, I buried a loved one, not a lovable one. I took great joy in it. I've been sober a few years. My first wife came to me and she says, you're doing so good, you take the little bitch before I kill her. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> my daughter was 13 and I said, okay, this is my first wife. Bring her on. And she came to live with me and she didn't want to. I'm living in a little inner city house with no furniture, nothing, and trying to get sober. And uh, she's coming from a big house out north side of town with the hot tubs and the Dooney Burke purses and the guest jeans and everything, you know. When they brought her bedroom suit into my little house that I was renting, they had to cut the canopy off of it. You know, it wasn't going in there, folks. You know? just they couldn't put all of her furniture in this little room she's going in. And she ain't happy to be there. You know, she wasn't happy to be out in the nice part of town. And she darn sure wasn't happy to be where she was going. And I told her, I said, Holly, I don't know how this is going to work out there. I said, I, I'm just going to try to love you no matter what. I'm going to love you because I'm your loving father. I'm going to love you the way we love each other in AA. I'm going to love you the way God loves us all. She was not impressed. <laughs> she didn't believe a word of it. She hadn't been able to believe anything I'd said for a long time. I had a lot of broken promises with that little girl for 13 years. And she said about to make my life a living hell. She's a little bitch. <laughs> you know, she came to me not long ago and she says, Dad, you call me a bitch in your talks. I said, would you rather I didn't do that? She says, yeah, I don't think I'd like you to do that. I said, you know, that's, that's, that's what happened. That's what your mother said. And I said, you know, I said, it probably helps some people to hear that. She says, it helps people? I said, because of the rest of the story. She's, okay, I'll be a little bitch. Okay. <laughs> so I share it with you with her permission. But anyway, 
I said about the lever the best I could. And I, it took all the Al-Anon meetings and all the AA meetings I could go to because I wanted to kill her. I mean, I couldn't believe the vocabulary this little 13-year-old girl's got. We'd be riding along the car, and I want to reach over and just pull the lips off of her face. <laughs> How can you talk to me like that? You know. And, and every time I've got an action, I know don't do it. That was one of the first things my sponsor taught me. He says, if you feel like you ought to do something, Otto, don't do it. <laughs> you know, don't do it. You know, these feelings, feelings will get you in trouble. You know, we've got to learn to be rational and act appropriately, regardless of how we feel. I didn't know how to act appropriately. I just acted out how I felt. You know, I'm angry, you suffer, boom. You know, you say the wrong thing, I hit you, boom, okay. And no, I had to learn to do it a different way. And what happened was I made good on my promise to my daughter. And I learned to love her no matter what. And what happened was she evolved. You know, I always wanted you to change. But when I change, you have to change. You know, it's kind of like uh, tennis. That long tennis tournament. You know, if you and I are playing tennis and I don't hit the ball back, tennis is over. <laughs> Game over. Game, set, match. And you stand over there, swing your racket, holler, scream, call me names. Tennis is over. If I don't hit the ball back. And so I quit playing tennis with my daughter. And I quit hitting the ball back. When she'd volley all those insults and all those nasties, and when she'd do those things that just drove, she knew drove me crazy, you know, I didn't react like I had reacted in the past. See, because there's nothing wrong with my daughter. She's the perfect product of all her experiences to that point in her life. And all she needed was her father to love her and to treat her kindly and give her a safe place where she could be angry and where she could be upset. And what happened was she evolved. And time passed, and I earned her trust. And we'd been together a couple of years, and we're doing great. I bought her a little car. You know, she turned 16, I bought her a little car. Now, she wears these big, thick glasses. She can't see nothing. She can't drive. <laughs> but I bought her a little car, because I don't want her driving mine. <laughs> I got a nice car. <laughs> and I like cars. I'm kind of a car guy, you know. So I bought her this little prelude like an 82 Honda Prelude. It's one of these little cars that when you step on the gas it just makes more noise than go faster. <laughs> it gets real loud. Gauges are all moving. Nothing's happening. I figure she can't get hurt in that, you know. But one night, it's a beautiful night, kind of like something we've had here. She comes to me, she says, Dad, can I take your car? And I have this really cool little sports car, convertible, brand new paint, kicker stereo, cool wheels, and then she wanted to go out. They hadn't been gone an hour. Dad, I was going too fast and I crashed the car. You okay? <laughs> Kristen, okay? Can you drive the car? Where you at? <laughs> Where they're not supposed to be. Stay right there. I'll be right there. Stay at that phone. Hung the phone up. I promise you, all bets are off. The little bitch is dead. Okay? <laughs> Forget all those promises. Forget those years of loving compassion. Anything but my car. Not my car. I'm driving out there. In an 82 Honda Prelude. 
so mad because I know I'm going to be driving it a while. And I'm playing in my head that conversation that we're going to have, you know. You know, you ever do that where you practice, you know, they say it and you say it, oh, then I'm going to say it and then you say it, and, oh, no, I'll say this, and then I, I always win. And, then, and I'm, plaque, I'm playing out this conversation and I hear her say what I hadn't heard her say before. Dad, I was going too fast and I crashed the car. She did the unthinkable. She did the unheard of in a family like mine. I promise you, she was the first person in the history of my family lineage to cop to a wrong. Dad, I was going too fast in Christ. And I remembered when I was a kid, and I told my dad, Dad, a deer ran out and ran me, and I swerved the mission. <laughs> Which was a lie. I was just going too fast, and I crashed the car. And my dad beat the hell out of me. Do you know what that's going to do to insurance? Don't you know what that car means to this family? Didn't I tell you to be careful? And he just darn near beat me to death. And that night I was able to go to Holly and comfort her. And love her. Because I knew she was, she knew what that car meant to me. She knew what it was going to do to her insurance. She knew all those things. She's dying. She's suffering. She knows that she has disappointed the person she most in the world wants to please. Isn't that a great time for Dad to come whip your butt? It's what I always did. It's what my family always did. But I got to go to Holly that night and comfort her. And the things that became important in my life became more important. And I began to experience intimacy and relationships that I had never experienced. I began to have the things that I'd wanted my whole life and didn't know what they were. Trust, honesty, openness, humility, vulnerability, family. I love my daughter. She's uh, 26 today, lives in Oklahoma. She's got a teaching degree and I have a beautiful granddaughter and she calls me and they come and visit. And, oh, God. I just love it. I just love it. I never thought I could be the, the person I am or my kids could be the people they are. It's great. Uh, one night I was at the car races on a Friday night. I like to go to the car races. I've been going to the car races since I grew up across the street. It's my passion is car racing. And I'm at the car races on a Friday night and something makes me get up and go home. I don't know what it is, but I just had this urge, and I got up, and I left the grandstand, and I walked down the ramps, and I'm leaving, and I feel sad. I don't know why I'm going, and where's my passion? I mean, it's a beautiful night. The car count's good. The track's good. The races are good. And I'm going home. Two and two is five. You know, what's going on? I don't know. And I went home, and I walked into my house, and my wife says, what are you doing here? I said, I don't know. I think I'll just watch TV tonight. It's nine o'clock. I sat down and turned on 20 ABC. 9 o'clock, Friday night, ABC, Barbara Walters, Hugh Downs, 2020, coming on. And the first little vignette they come on, it just started. It shows a helicopter flying over the jungles in Vietnam. I said, then I watched that, and the name of the little vignette was called The Gift of Life. And it's about a guy writing a book about emergency room trauma. 
And he's interviewing the top trauma specialist in the country. And he's from uh, New Jersey. His name is Dr. Kenneth Swan. And he asked Dr. Swan, what was your worst emergency room trauma? And Dr. Swan began to recount when he was a young surgeon at the 71st Medevac at Pleiku, Vietnam in 1968. And they brought in a young soldier who was so gravely wounded that the consensus was to medicate him, set him aside, declare him expectant, and let him die. His legs are blown off. One of his arms is severed off. Fingers are gone. He's got shrapnel the size of your thumb in the middle of his brain. Both of his eyes are gone. His lower jaw is gone. He's brain damaged. He's legless. Let him die. Dr. Swan went against the consensus, operated on this kid, and saved him. The guy writing the book says, well, did you make the right decision? Did you turn out okay, or did you save him for a life of misery? Dr. Swan didn't know. He'd never followed up. He was just one of those kids he mashed and set on. So it took him two years to find this kid. His name's Ken McGarity. He lives in Columbus, Georgia. And they start telling his story. He's in a helicopter trying to drop firefighting equipment to infantrymen pinned down to burn in the jungle on September 21st, 1968. And I just went bonkers. I'm sitting on that sofa and I'm shaking and I'm trembling. And my wife came over and sat down next to me and hung on to me. And she says, what's the matter? And I said, I don't know. I said, I think this is my kid. I think this is my nightmare. I think this is the horror I've lived with. I think this is my story. I mean, I just, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I'm just shaking and trembling and my wife hung on me. And they went ahead with this story. And I'll make it short since I've talked so long, but it's him. This is the kid that I put those tourniquets on that day in 1968. And he's married since Vietnam. Now this guy's blind and legless. And I don't mean partially sighted. There's no eyes in his head. I don't mean legless from the knees down. He has no legs from the hips down. Okay? He has nine fingers, but he can only feel with two. Sometimes. Because he smokes and he burns those two fingers that he can feel with. And he can't always use them. One arm, the one arm that was partially severed, they reattached it backwards. It's his left arm. They reattached it backwards to save it. So he's got no legs, no eyes, one arm on backwards, and he can feel with two fingers. But since Vietnam, he's met a woman and married. And he's fathered two children. He has two daughters. And he sails. And he scuba dives. He owns his own boat. I mean, this guy's incredible. And they show pictures of him holding his babies, you know, to this torso. It's just a torso holding his babies. And I thought, God, you know, maybe this is what God's how God's going to fix those images that I have of him being. I'm going to remember the images of him holding his babies. You know? Maybe that's what If you ever do that with your sponsor, you go, what's God doing? You know, I call my sponsor all the time. What's God doing? Why is this happening? You know, why is my car stolen? Why is the dog dead? Why? Why, why, why? What's God doing? You know, why do they blow up the trade centers? What's going on? I got a good sponsor. He always says, I don't know. <laughs> God doesn't tell me. <laughs> Anyway, what really happened was, part of the story was is that Ken didn't know what happened to him that day. 
Ken suffers from post-traumatic stress, and Ken's one of the many, many, many Vietnam veterans that has not been able to get home. He's physically here, but emotionally and psychologically, he lives in the jungles of Vietnam. He's violent, he's drunk, he's a drug abuser, his wife has left him, he lives alone. When they made this particular program, he had a bullet hole in his left shoulder, he was living in a room by himself eating spam. They didn't tell all that on the show, I learned that later. Because the key to the show for me was that they said that he didn't know what happened to him that day and he couldn't get home from Vietnam. And I thought, well, I know what happened. I was looking right at him and maybe I can help. And I contacted Dr. Swan and Ken called me. Swan called Ken, Ken called me. And it started a dialogue. And um, remember when I said I wouldn't do my four-step on that Vietnam on my four-step? My sponsor says, well, when it's time, you'll do it. Well, it was time. And so I'm trying to help Ken out of the jungles and trying to help him get home. And he's dragging me back in. And I'm talking to him long distance on the phone two and three times a week, and he's killing me. He's killing me because he remembers the names. He remembers the numbers. He knows, I mean, he's taking me places that I have blocked out and locked away and forgotten about, and he's killing me. But he's also getting something from me. He's hearing this program in me. And I learned that he's alcoholic, and I learned that he's drug addict, and he wants to know how I do what I do. And he starts to work this program of recovery. I spoke at the Georgia State Convention in October of last year. Ken was there. And when I got to this point in my talk, I said, how long have you been without a drink, Ken? And from the audience, Ken said, 10 years, Otto. You know, God used me to sleep twice. But the magic for me was, you know, what's, what's in it for me? Okay? <laughs> what's in it for me? <laughs> well, they're making a movie about Ken's life. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. <laughs> you know, who's going to play me? <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was really angry about having to go back to Vietnam with Ken. You know, it's kind of like working with people you don't like. You know, you work with them anyway because you're supposed to. And if you keep working with them, it works out. Either they go away or you get better. <laughs> you know, one or the other. And what happened was I had, I had found a place to buttonhole all my anger with Ken. And it was in the fact that every time I talked to Ken, we would hang out. And never once did that SOB say, thanks, Otto. Thanks for saving my life. It was no small feat. It was it was a big damn deal. And this guy hadn't said squat. And every time I hang up the phone, no thank you. And it was becoming an issue with me. I'm getting hot. Okay? And he sends me a letter, or he asked me to send him some memorabilia and stuff for the movie, for the book, you know. And on it I put a cover letter. And in the cover letter I wrote, Ken, I've got a resentment. In all the months we've worked, in all the months we've talked, you've never said thank you for saving your life. 
Boy, I was glad to get it out on that piece of paper. But I made the mistake of showing it to my wife. She's been to just a couple of Al-Anon meetings. <laughs> and she's been to enough open AA meetings and read enough of that big book to know that there's something in there that says uh, something about a spiritual axiom or something about, you know, if something's bugging you, there's something wrong with you, too. And she said, that doesn't belong in there. This, you never said thank you. And I said, oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. It's the truth, and I live in the truth. And he hadn't done it. Okay? And she says, well, I don't think it belongs in there. You might... Consider that spiritual axiom that you talked about. Yeah, and I went back to my word processor to edit it out. You know, I got to get it out of there. I don't want to rewrite the whole letter, but I got to get it out of there. And so as I'm trying to change it and have it make sense without having to rewrite it, what comes out was the answer to my sponsor, the question I had from my sponsor, what's God doing? Because what came out was, Kenny, I've never said thank you. And for all those years, I had only seen me running into the burning jungle to get Kenny. Truth, I'm pinned down in the burning jungle. Kenny's safe in a helicopter. Kenny flies into harm's way for me. When that rocket hit that helicopter, he gave his sight, and he gave his legs, and he entered into that darkness and that disability for me. And nobody had ever told him, thank you, Kenny. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your service. Thank you for what you tried to do for me. And it healed me. It made me whole. Vietnam stopped being an issue for me. What became important was for me to just love Kenny. To say thank you to Kenny. And to know the joy of loving Kenny. And I want you to know, he's... The most incredible person I know. He's magnificent. Two years later, he and his wife drove in a little on the prelude <laughs> all the way from Columbus, Georgia to Dallas, Texas to meet me and tell me thank you. Everything in God's time. Everything is right. He's made everything right. Even my even physically. You know, I was like this for 28 years. I could not bend. I could not tie my own shoe. I could not cut my own toenail. I could not put on my own sock without a device. I couldn't sit on a toilet seat. I couldn't drive a standard transmission or ride a bicycle. I can't bend. I have no joints. My knee will bend, but it hurts too bad because walking for all these years without a hip joint, without an ankle joint. And I'm just stiff. And I have chronic pain that bothers me every day. And they told me if I could ever go 10 years without infection, that I'd be a candidate for a prosthetic hip. Candidate. 10 years, no infection. I could never go a year. And that hole would open up here or over here and the pus would run out of me. 10 years sober, I'm 10 years without infection. I'll tell you why. When I would drink and I would drug to quell the pain, then I would abuse myself and create the pain. I always thought I drank and took the drugs because I had the pain. And today I know that I had the pain because I drank and drugged. Because of the way I abused myself 
when I drank and drank. So ten years sober and living a life of moderation and not being able to sedate myself and so living reasonably so as not to hurt myself, I'm ten years without infection and the doctor says, Otto, I think I can help you. And today, I can sit in a regular chair. I can cross my leg. I can take off my own shoe. I can cut my own toenails. I can bend down. I can sit on a toilet. <laughs> I have custom toilets, custom furniture in my home. My dining room table, I've still got it. It's bar height. Because <laughs> I'm much more comfortable sitting on a bar stool than I am in a conventional chair because I don't bend. If I try to sit in a conventional chair and eat, I have to eat like this. Ten years sober, I started a process of being made physically whole. I've got a beautiful wife. I've been married 15 years today. I've been monogamous for 17. I'm grateful for that. I live in a world I didn't know existed. I'm happier, healthier, more whole physically, emotionally, socially, legally, financially, maritally, parentally than I've ever been in my life. I live in a world I didn't know existed. And it's all because I didn't take a drink one day at a time. I trusted you when you said, Otto, if you don't use those pills, the pain will go away. You know what? The pills go before the pain. It's just the way it works. Because my brain will tell me it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Why wait till it hurts? Hell, take a pill. No, the pills go before the pain does. And so today I live pretty much pain-free. And I live a life that's pretty much whole and normal and healthy and whole. And I couldn't be more happy. I go to meetings five, six days a week. I'm 17 years clean and sober. Almost all of my friends are in AA. Although I can function in the world as it is. You know? uh, I'm really happy that you all came and let me talk for. God, I'm glad that was upside down. <laughs> An hour and a half. Uh, that's a long time, and I appreciate your grace and your tolerance and your patience. And I hope that maybe somebody out there heard something they needed to hear. Uh, I needed to share it. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.